Okay, for our message now, it'll be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, The Mysteries of Baptism. Good afternoon. So if you're available, we have a celebration coming up called the Feast of Trumpets. So if you, uh, we'd love to have you back. That'd be fantastic. You know, in many ways, if you've thought about it, and certainly uh, if you've been through it, you've thought about it, but baptism is a strange thing, isn't it? It's strange in a few different ways. I mean, at first, I, I mean, I remember being like a 16-year-old and uh, somewhat of a shy young man, and uh, I really didn't like the fact that I was the center of attention. You know, there you are, you're standing there, and you're, you're not wearing the same clothes as everybody else because you've changed out of your church clothes, and you're, you're getting ready to get wet. And so that's a little strange. And then... You are the center of attention. And everybody else is gathered around and looking at you. All right, can you all turn around and not look at me? Can we do this without you looking at me? It just kind of, you know, it points out things that you're doing and that you're experiencing, that you're going through. And it's an intimate moment, but it's a public moment. It's a really fascinating exercise and a really interesting practice that we follow. And then we enter into this body of water, don't we? And, you know, if you're fortunate, the water's been warmed up, right? But depending on where you were baptized at, maybe it was, you know, the temperature of the outside. Maybe you were baptized in a lake or in a river or a stream or whatever. And you just got the temperature that was there. I remember when I was baptized, it was nice and warm. It was almost like a bathtub, warm. But then, you step or stand or, or enter into that water almost by yourself. In many situations, there's somebody there with you, right? There's the person that is hopefully going to bring you back up again, right? It's an interesting experience. And then we have the onlookers, family and friends. You know, and I remember when I was baptized, my aunts and uncles came, relatives came. Uh, you know, my, my mom probably insisted that they came because none of them were churchgoers. Only our family were. And I remember coming up out of the waters of baptism to see my dad jumping up and down. Totally embarrassing me. But he was happy. Right? He was filled with what Art was talking about earlier, filled with joy. And so then we stand there or sit there, dripping wet after being pulled up out of the water. And then we receive the laying on of hands from the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting experience. And it's a powerful experience. And as I said before, it's intimate and it's public. And I'm sure each and every one of us, if we've been baptized, are thinking back to our baptism. In many ways, I suppose, uh, certainly in our society today, if you're not a Christian, 
this practice might seem quite strange, a little unusual. And yet, if you look around the world, there are many religious practices that are quite similar uh, to, to baptism, even in the Christian sense. There's certainly very many variations of baptism, but it's not actually that unusual, is it? There's this remarkable substance called water that we all know can wash us clean. And it's made up of the elements that we need, or one of the parts that we need to live. It's made up of oxygen, mixed with hydrogen. And it's a fascinating thing. And it's not acidic, but it will break down minerals. And in that water, from, whether it's from a, a fresh stream or so on, we can absorb the goodness that that water carries. Such a powerful substance. And so, it's really not that unusual that a very important spiritual process is built around and centered around this water and being baptized in water. Like I said before, we can be baptized in a swimming pool, a river, a lake, a pond, an ocean, or a cattle trough. We used to have a cattle trough for our baptism, didn't we, for a long time? You know, and there'd be like a little leak and the weld on the bottom, and there'd be a pile of towels there to try and soak it up. Now we have a fancy baptismal unit. But it really doesn't matter where we are baptized. And that is a very big difference to other cultures. You know, I think it's in the Hindu uh, religion that you have to go to certain places. You have to go to these holy rivers, the Ganges and others. And that's where you have to be baptized. Not so in Christianity. Although, people do, don't they? They go to special places. And I, I'm not criticizing that. There's lots of people that have gone to Israel and want to be baptized in the Jordan River. And there's, of course, a lot of meaning for, for folks that do that. And that's not a criticism. But it's not necessary. It is not necessary. We can be baptized anywhere as long as there's enough water to cover our body. And so, we have a baptism today, don't we? And we have another baptism after baptisms after baptisms that go all the way back to John the Baptist, the man that started this process in the Christian church. And so we can be baptized anywhere. As an example, let's turn to Acts 8 and verse 26. This is a familiar passage. It's Philip, and he has been spirited away to go and talk to a eunuch. And we, we have the story here in verse 26. And it says, Now the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And I find it interesting that the scripture points out, This is desert. Hmm. Why does it say that? Why is that important? This is desert. So he arose and went. 
And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. And was, he was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading, uh, reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guide me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him in the place. Uh, and the, the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before his shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humil humil humiliation his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water in the desert. Isn't that interesting? Of course, we know that there are places in the desert where there's water. But this seems a little coincidental. He says, see here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And now when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Now we hope that doesn't happen to Steve today. <laughs> Callie certainly hopes that, right? But what an amazing baptism. You're not going to forget that baptism, are you? But the man that just lifted you up is gone. Disappeared. And what's also interesting is we don't even have the name of the place. We don't have a name for the Ethiopian. It was just, I don't know, it could have been a puddle, a ditch at the side of the road filled with enough water to baptize it. Or I prefer to think of a beautiful oasis, palm trees. But we don't know where it is. The place is not important. The baptism is And then we read on. Again, another example. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, about how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine 
to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me so that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight once more, and he arose Paul. Saul, changing his name, as we know, to Paul, was baptized. The biggest enemy of the church changed, repented, received his sight. That beautiful old song, isn't it? I was blind, but now I see. And immediately he was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. It doesn't say where he was baptized. And you can guarantee, if, it, if the scripture said where Paul was baptized, there'd be a shrine. You could buy the holy water from Paul's <laughs> baptismal location. Right? It doesn't matter where he was baptized matter is that he was baptized. And this is true for all Christians. In the Christian faith it simply does not matter where one is baptized. What matters is the baptism itself and what it symbolizes. But let me ask you a question. What does baptism symbolize? What does it mean what is represented by this person going down into the water, being held there for a moment, and then coming back up? What does it truly mean? Some say it is a public expression of faith. Right? It's a public witness of a belief in Jesus Christ. A symbol to the world that the believer has committed themselves to Jesus Christ. And while that is true, it is not the primary imagery that we see. It is a byproduct of the truth of baptism. But it is not the only meaning of baptism. One of the earliest images of baptism that we have in the scriptures is not found in the New Testament at all. It's not found amongst the early church. It is found all the way back in the book of Exodus. We all know the story. The last tenth plague, right, has come on the land of Egypt. A terrible plague. The, the death of the firstborn. Except for who? The children of Israel. Right, because they did what? They covered the doorposts of their homes with the blood of the Lamb. And this event finally releases the iron grip of Pharaoh. And he lets the Israelites go. He lets them go. And the people of God could then leave the land of their captivity 
There are lots of ways they could have traveled. Lots of directions they could have traveled. Probably safer paths that they could have traveled. But instead, where did they travel to? Well, they went to the beach, didn't they? Right? Like anybody does when they're on their holidays. They go to the beach. They went down to the sea where they could be trapped against the sea. What was the purpose of that? Turn into uh, Exodus chapter 14 and verse 10. Because while they had traveled, the Pharaoh's heart had grown hard again. And he had second thoughts about letting this people go, didn't he? And so then we find in verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, you had to take us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way? To bring us up out of Egypt. Is this not the word that we told you? Didn't we tell you this was going to happen? Just leave it alone. Leave us in Egypt. We had houses to live in. We weren't going to get killed out here in the wilderness. Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, they said. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in this wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Why are these people crying to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. What? This is not what we want to have happen. Is it? We don't want them to follow them. We want them to go away. Can you just take them away? will see that he could not just take them away. So I will gain honor even over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of the Lord who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went before went before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Now, this is a rich passage. It has lots of meaning, lots of symbolism here. And not just for the story of Israel. Not just for the Israelite narrative. It is also for us. For all of us who have been baptized. Or who are about 
to be baptized. Firstly, in verse 10, I, I was tell, talking to my wife about this this morning. And what did you say? That the Israelites really uh, were a pretty sarcastic bunch. In verse 10, because there were no graves in Egypt, you had to bring us out here. Pretty sarcastic bunch. Why have you dealt with us thus? What's the answer to that question? What's the answer to the question? Because there were no graves in Egypt, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What's the answer? Yes. You have been brought out here to die in the wilderness. You might be saying, well, well they, they, they didn't die. They escaped. Ah, but they did. They did die in the, in the wilderness. And I don't mean in the 40 years, that generational period of God's judgment. That comes later, right here, right now. At the shores in the sea, they will die in the wilderness. Their baptism. It is their baptism. In that baptism, they will die. When they come up the other side, they are to come up what? Reborn. When they enter into the one side of that sea, what are they? They are fleeing slaves with their taskmaster, with their slave lords chasing them. And when they come out the other side, they are a free people reborn. It is an amazing story of baptism. Being buried in the grave and then brought out in that newness of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, first, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this about this event. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. He sees it this way. The Apostle Paul sees the exodus and the journey of the children of Israel through that, that sea as a baptism. As surely as each one of us is baptized. And then he adds more to it in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We die in baptism. In that moment, we die in Christ Jesus, in his death. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Coming out the other side, 
being lifted out of that baptismal, cleansed, reborn, a new creature. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Just like Israel. They were slaves. And they were being chased by their taskmasters to bring them back into slavery. Probably worse slavery than they had before. But through baptism, through that baptism, they are now in newness of life. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the, de- for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But that the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes. There weren't enough graves in Egypt. They were supposed to die in the wilderness and be reborn on the other side of their baptism. Leave Egypt behind and become something completely new. What does the scripture call them? They were supposed to be a holy nation, right? A peculiar people, a special people of God. Just like us when we are baptized. But in this story, there's a warning. And we all need to pay attention to this warning. We cannot just leave Egypt. We can't just say, you know, I'm not going to sin no more. I'm not going to do that. And just walk away. And think that that is sufficient. That's not enough. Why? Because that old man, that old woman, he or she comes after us, just like the Egyptian, looking to bring us into captivity. Why did God let the Egyptians be so close to the Israelites as they traveled through their baptism? Why did he let them come all the way through into that baptismal water to destroy destroy that old man, to destroy those that would bring them into captivity. They were no longer slaves. Their taskmasters were dead. They had no claim over them anymore. They were free. The reality is that when we all leave our own personal Egypt, our old man, our old captor, must left in the bottom of the sea. In the bottom of that baptismal. And we come up as the new creature, free from the chains of captivity, as we just read. Another critical point that I, I want to just kind of point out, another rich lesson that we learn from the baptism story in Exodus, and that we also can remember and and understand in our own baptism. And it's really an incredible point, And it's easily skipped over. In Exodus 14, 19. 
it says, and the angel, which is translated there, the Malak of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went before them and stood behind them. And so it came between the camp and the Egyptians and the camp of, the, of, of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and a darkness to one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all night long. Now, I don't know if you remember, but this term, Malak of the Lord, is very special. In many of the times that it's used in the Bible, it's a very particular person that is being referred to. And the example that I've, I've used in the past is when this Malak of the Lord appeared to Hagar. If you, uh, if you want to turn there, it's actually uh, in Genesis 16, 13 through 14. But in that particular moment, Hagar is, she's out, she's fleeing, she's been abused by, uh, by Sarah, and, and she doesn't know what she's going to do. And this Malak of the Lord appears to her, comforts her, gives her a promise for her and her son. Who do you think she thought this person was? It wasn't just an angel. It wasn't a Gabriel or a Michael. As amazing as that might be, and as scary as that might be, if that would have happened to us, this was somebody very, very different. She names the place, you are the God who sees. Because she had been seen by the Malak, by God, and lived. So this is a very special individual. This is the person that we know as Jesus Christ. So we can take away from the story of Israel going through this baptism, what we can take away is that when we go through the waters of baptism, when we commit our lives to Christ, the Malak of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself has our back. He moves behind us and protects us and shields us. It's just such a powerful imagery that you see that he comes between what? The slavers and the people. He becomes between the old man, the old person that we used to be and the new creature that he is building in himself. There's a beautiful prophecy that is given to Israel. But not just Israel. It's also, I think, applicable to the church. Very applicable to the church. We find it in Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 1. In the King James Bible, the, the subtitle says, The Redeemer of Israel. But I think it could just as easily be called the Redeemer of the Saints. It says, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned nor shall the flame scorch you. God is with us. When we go through the waters of baptism, he is with us. He's, 
He's right there. The waters will not overflow us. They will not trouble us or consume us. And if we go through a baptism of fire, as Barnabas eloquently said in his note earlier, when we go through those baptisms of fire, he is there. Why? Because we are his. He says, you are mine. And he takes care of his, of his own. He's right there with us. He will not let us be burned. He will not let us drown. As I said in the beginning, baptism is a strange thing. And it seems like when we're stepping into that water and we're the one being baptized, it feels like we're all alone with everybody looking at us. But we are not alone. Because Jesus Christ, our Savior, is right there with us. We are being laid in his grave. And then he brings us up out of his grave into that life with him. The Malik of the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the only Savior that there has ever been, the only Savior that there will be, is with us. In verse 3 he says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Serbia in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. And that's, that's clear. That's talking about Israel, the nation. But what did God give for us, for our life? He didn't give men. He gave amen. Didn't he? Amen. That man, Jesus Christ. That's how precious we are. He says, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Such a beautiful mixture of, of imagery for, for Israel but, but also those that are in Christ who are Abraham's seed his peculiar people in the church and we are very peculiar I know that I'm the worst but we have been formed by him haven't we? and by his name we are the elect of God in verse 8 he says bring out the blind who have eyes, and the deaf who have ears. And let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled, who among them can declare this, and show us the former things. Let them bring out their witnesses, that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is truth. God says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me, even I. I am the Lord. And besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed. And there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. 
Who is that? If not the church. The witnesses of God. It's not Israel right now, is it? So who is it? Well, we read it in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. Jesus tells us who these witnesses are. And being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, commanded them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Israel has not been the witnesses. The church has been the witnesses. And what are we the witnesses of? Well, when we are being baptized, we are witnessing. We are witnessing that we receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. We are witnessing and proclaiming to the world Jesus Christ is the only Redeemer. And through death, his death and the baptism and the resurrection, his resurrection, he is creating something new. We are witnesses to this. But besides him, there is no other. We join in the words of Isaiah and say in verse 13, back to Isaiah 43, 13. Indeed, before the day was, I am he. And we'll read that here in a minute. Before there was a day made, before day was a thing, he was the redeemer. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Thus says the Lord your redeemer, the holy one of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse and the army and the power. They lie down together and shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Quenched, just buried in those waters, never to return. And he says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? That's something we would might maybe read in Revelation about the former things being passed away. The enemy, the old ways, the old man, the old man or woman that we used to be is dead in the waters. Dead, quenched like a wick. They are destroyed in the waters. They are sent to the bottom of the sea and the watery grave. And what comes up is that new creature, that new man or woman in Christ Jesus. 
God says, behold, I will do a new thing. Something new, something that has not ever been done before. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. We have been formed by him. He has made us. He has called us into his congregation, into his gathering. The elect of God. His saints. We can drink that water, the scripture says. But when we get to that point, is that all we're going to do? When we get to the kingdom of God, when there is water in the desert, when there are rivers in the desert, is that all we're going to do with that water? I don't think so. I think there's going to be a lot of baptism in that water. Can you imagine what it will be like when the whole world finally sees the Redeemer that we know? The King of the whole earth. Who knows? There might be a resurrected John the Baptist standing down by the riverside. And what will he declare? Repent and receive forgiveness of sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember back when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and John chapter 3, he spoke of two births. And of course, it kind of blew Nicodemus' mind, didn't it? Didn't quite get what was going on. In verse 1, it says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night. So maybe he couldn't be recognized. Going to go talk to the enemy. Going to go talk to Jesus said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who was born of the spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher in Israel and and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our, our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
and right there, that points to the importance, doesn't it, of doing earthly things. And he doesn't mean sinful things. He means the symbolic things that we do, the baptism that we do, the, the receiving of, 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 of the, the body and, and the, the blood of Jesus Christ and the imagery that we have at Passover. And the things that we do are so important to help us understand the spiritual. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then we have that very memorable passage that we all love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that goes back to what we just read in, in Isaiah. What did God give for us? He gave his only son. This, Malachi the Lord, Jesus Christ. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, I would say that we have made a lot of some of the words in this passage, certainly in our tradition, right? We've been very concerned about maybe translations of the word born again or born, begotten, and so on. And that's fine. It's okay to study that and to kind of look at the wording and the structure and, and sometimes, you know, maybe in the past it's been used as, as a proof text or, or whatever. But we get too wrapped up in some of that. We get too wrapped up about, well, what does he mean when he says born again? Is he saying that you're born again now? Or are you begotten now? And there's a lot of concern about that. We get really wrapped up in that. We'll miss a really big point of what Jesus is trying to teach us. And a big point about what baptism symbolizes. The word born that he uses in the Greek simply means to bring forth. It means to bring forth. Bring forth from one place to another, right? So it's somewhat situational, but it just means to bring forth. So it's not incorrect to view this as being born and then being born again, is what Jesus was talking about. And as I said, if we get hung up on this, we can kind of get a little confused about what he is trying to teach us. In the most basic sense, the word translated into the English as born or born again simply means to beget or bring forth. So what does that mean? When we apply some logic to that, what does that mean? If we're not brought forth, right, if we're not born of water, we can't see the kingdom of, of God. Okay, so we have to be born of water. Well, what's that? Well, when a woman goes into labor, her water breaks, doesn't it? We are all born water. 
take it. That's what it means. You've got to be here to start with. You've got to be a human being born of water. Okay? Well then, what's after that? Well, Jesus says that we also have to be born of the Spirit. Otherwise, we still cannot enter into the kingdom of God. As it happens, one must happen and another must happen. But birth does not come until there's been what? Birth is the end of something, isn't there? Birth is a the final step in a process of gesting, of growth, of maturity to a level where now we can live outside of whatever we were living in before. So for us as human beings, we can now survive, we can breathe air, our lungs are matured enough, and provided we are given food and water, we can live outside of our mother's womb in the physical sense. We have reached that level of maturity. It's no different then. Remember Jesus said, I'm showing you the physical so that you can understand the spiritual. It is no different then. That if we are born of the spirit, we have to be able to survive as spirit. We have to live in that new dimension, that new reality. And what is that? goes back to that joke, right, between two twins in the womb, and one says to the other, do you think there's life outside of the womb? We don't know that. In its fullest extent. We don't know what that's fully like until we are born of the Spirit. When you boil it all down, the imagery here is all about being brought forth. Brought forth from one place to another being brought forth out of death, out of the waters of baptism, into life. When Jesus cried to Lazarus in John eleven forty three, what did he cry? Lazarus, come forth. Come forth out of that death into life. He came forth. It's a process of coming forth or being brought forth, coming from one state to another, from one condition to another. Coming from death to life. From the darkness of the grave to the light of life. From the waters of baptism to a new Christ life in us. That's moving us forward to another birth. Another baptism, if you will. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, you'll see lots of the same terminology. Specifically, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now that's interesting too, isn't it? There's water and spirit. At the very beginning. And Jesus said you have to be born of the water and the spirit. And here we have a Genesis, water and spirit. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. What follows 
is a process of bringing forth. God calls for light. And there's light. Remember earlier we read the scripture that said, before the day was, I existed. This is it. He called the day, day. He made the light. And then, you read through the creative process, he brings forth animals. He brings forth the, the grasses and the herbs, the plants. And he brings everything forth out of what? If the earth is covered in water, what does he bring it forth out of? The waters. He's creating out of this watery break, and he's bringing forth life. That's what he's been doing with you and me. He's bringing us forth in the spirit to a new spiritual birth, forward, a new life, new baptism, if you will. Paul reflects this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the, cre of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing, the bringing forth, that bringing forth the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the Son of God. Creation itself is being redeemed by what God is doing with the saints, with each and every one of us. This is the powerful imagery that we have in baptism. That he is bringing forth life out of death that he is bringing forth a creation and a restoration of this world through the saints. He says, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So what does baptism represent? Our witness, our confession that Jesus Christ is our Savior? Well, of course. Absolutely. But it's more than that. Each and every baptism is a bringing forth of the plan of salvation. Not just for us, but for the whole world. For what God is going to do on this earth. It proclaims that there is only one Redeemer. And that it is Jesus Christ. And that he will bring us all. All of his creation through the waters of baptism. That he has our back. That he is with us no matter what. In every situation. And he will deal with our enemies. And the weight of sin. That so easily ensnares us. Every baptism shows forth the creative and restorative power of the Redeemer. And points to the day when we'll all be finally born again into the kingdom of God.